This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. We should probably uh, start here. I think uh, it's a 2 to 245 block. Um, can you all hear me fine? Yes. We do have one fan on. It's a little bit of air circulation, but they're afraid that if we had both of them on, it might be a little bit of sound issues. So I'll try to sp- uh, talk a little bit loudly here. Thank you for coming. Uh, the topic is on the PowerPoint up here, Religious Liberty, an Enduring Term from the Early Church Fathers to America's Founding Fathers. Uh, my name is Paul Hartog, and um, let's have a word of prayer. And we'll look at this together. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for his death for our sins and for his resurrection. And we thank you, Father, uh, for the freedoms that we have uh, to worship you. And Father, I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom as we look into the past and help us to see insights uh, from the history of this concept and its uh, passage in time that might be of assistance to us today. And for the sake of your glory and for the church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what's the word patristics mean? What's, what's that word mean? Patristics. Patristics. Church fathers. Church fathers, okay. So, so, um, so we're thinking of church fathers not in the sense of like some type of religious authority that's the bearer of tradition that's equal with scripture or something like that. That's not what we're thinking of here in this case. We're using it as a historical term. It's fascinating we actually use the same word fathers to talk about America's founding fathers, And the story we're going to cover in the next uh, 45 minutes, but I guess minus uh, question time, 30 or so minutes, 35 minutes, is up on the board. I'm a visual learner, so I actually graphed this out on the board where we're going. So you can see the big picture. Sorry for those of you sitting up front. You've got to put a crane in your neck to kind of look backwards at that. We'll be putting uh, some full-color pictures up on the PowerPoint, but this kind of gives the overall picture because what we're doing is we're starting with Tertullian around the year 200. We're going to Cyprian Lactantius. We're jumping all the way to Thomas Jefferson and America's founding fathers. And then we're making our way backwards to Roger Williams, William Penn, the early English Baptists, and Castellio and the continent. So that's the number up there. So first Tertullian, two Cyprian, three Lactantius, four Jefferson, then going backwards. Williams Penn, early English Baptist, Castillo, and the continent. So on your handout there, uh, the rhetoric of religious liberty has inundated political and public discourse, often without ample appreciation for the complexities of the development of the notion within intellectual history. Uh, Many people think that religious liberty is more of an enlightenment issue alone, that because of the enlightenment and therefore the talk of religious toleration, that we have religious liberty today. And a lot of people don't realize that actually not only is the coinage of the term uh, religious liberty in Latin, but uh, the passing down of it actually has a Christian stream as well. Um, And of course, like all streams, uh, you have situations of cross-watering. For example, you have people like John Locke who are learning from the Enlightenment and learning from the Christian tradition, etc. And we don't have time to delve deeply into all that kind of a facet today, but we're looking primarily at the religious stream. So we're beginning with Tertullian. Does anybody know anything about Tertullian? Like, what do you think, what have, what have you heard about him before? Do you know anything? What's, what's your background knowledge? Did he know John so you're probably thinking of Polycarp. It's a great. That's another important early church quote father. But Polycarp uh, would be one according to tradition was a disciple of John. So Tertullian's a little bit older. 
He is actually the first Latin theologian that we have extant, so all the ones before him that we have are Greek. He is from North Africa, from the Carthage area. And uh, if you look at your handout there, the specific term libertas religionis, or religious liberty, was first advanced by Tertullian of Carthage. And it happens in his apology, that is, uh, apology not in the sense of, oh, I'm sorry, I became a Christian, didn't mean to do that, but from the Greek word apologo, that we name it, of course he's working with the Latin, but the sense of uh, being a defense of the faith, of the Christian faith. And um, it's important to realize that he's the one who comes up with a term, and as he says in that apology, that we should not do away with freedom of religion, there's where that term lands, to forbid a man's choice of duty so that I may not worship whom I would, but am forced to worship whom I would not. If you kind of go down through his works, why does he argue for his liberty? In my next paragraph there, I try to argue because such freedom fits the inherent nature of belief, as if you coerce belief, it's not really belief. Secondly, the nature of humans, the nature of the human person as a responsible agent. And then the nature of God, a worthy God would not commend forced worship. So as he says related to that in the next paragraph, no worthy deity would wish to receive reluctant worship. And so he's saying, you pagans are persecuting Christians, but why is that? Like, why would your gods need you to do that? If they're really gods and they're that powerful, why can't they take care of themselves? And why do they need you uh, to do that? Um, by analogy, not even a human would desire to receive unwilling homage. Moreover, the injustice of forcing men of free will to offer sacrifice against their will is readily apparent, for under all of the circumstances, a willing mind is required for discharging one's religious obligation. So that's also in the Apology 28. And then we come uh, to the next paragraph. This is going to be a paragraph that's going to appear throughout the four pages of this handout, probably the most important paragraph of the entire handout. It comes from ad scapulum, so that's in the Latin. It's a letter written to scapula. We have a volunteer who wants to read after Tertullian declared, pick it up with, it is the law, and read to the end of that long quote. Volunteer to do that for us, please. It is the law of mankind, human eye and ear us. You don't need to work with the Latin. If you and don't. the natural right of each individual, the Latin, to worship what he thinks proper, nor does the religion of one man either harm or help another. But it's not proper for religion to compel men to religion which should be accepted of one's own accord, not by force, since sacrifices also are required of a willing mind. So even if you compel us to sacrifice, you will render no service to your gods. Okay, so we'll cut that off there. Thank you for reading that. So I put the Latin in there in case you're interested in some history of terms. So you see the word jurist, there we get a word jury, jurisdiction, of course, from Latin phrase. So the next Latin phrase I have there is the natural power, is that idea there. But you can kind of get a sense of what religious liberty looks like. And this paragraph is going to have a long thread of influence in the historical discussion of religious liberty. So on the PowerPoint, I have a picture of him as he's drawn much later. That is not a contemporary portrait, as you might imagine. Since he's from Carthage, North Africa, they tended to picture him uh, later with like, a, a turban on because of his uh, Middle Eastern background. But it's really no way of knowing for sure exactly what he looked like. The next one is also from that same area of North Africa. His name is Cyprian. We're jumping now around the year 250. And that is important in this whole discussion, but he does say a few things that are, are related to religious liberty. That first paragraph under him, the last sentence, attack the vigor of the mind, break the strength of the mind, destroy faith, conquer if you can by discussion, conquer by reason. What he's saying is to conquer by the sword um, is really not religious persuasion. So you should make the best case you can so that freely, people can freely and voluntarily choose religion. 
Cyprian reasoned, next paragraph, you should be ashamed to worship those whom you yourself defend. You should be ashamed to hope for protection from those you protect. That brings us to Lactantius. He is the third of these North African um, early church fathers. He dies around the year 325. So 325, if you know much about patristic church history, that would be the year of the Nicene Council, the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed, that era under Constantine. But prior to that, Christianity saw the worst persecution they've ever seen. It's called the Great Persecution around the year 303. In fact, in Eastern Christendom, they actually date, dated uh, before and after, after that persecution rather than BCAD because it was such an important kind of event in the history of the church out in the East. Uh, overall, just be aware that the Roman persecution of Christianity was local and sporadic. So sometimes as Christians, we have this view like telling the past, like the Romans were constantly rounding people up and killing them all the time. If you want to be fair to the historical evidence, it's actually not true. It tended to be sporadic. It would kind of sprout up over here and then go die down, sprout up over here, die down. It tended to be local and sporadic. Uh, the two major imperial wide ones would be 250s when Cyprian is writing and 303 when Lactantius was alive. So, Lactantius insisted that religion is a matter which is voluntary above all others, nor can necessity be imposed upon it any so as to worship that which he does not wish. Although individuals can be forced to pretend falsely that they are worshiping, the true desire remains lacking. In other words, to put a word that we would be familiar with, hypocrisy is what he's against. He thinks that religious coercion leads to hypocrisy. Uh, the next paragraph has a couple of quotes from him side by side. He refers to the idea of not imposing on me the necessity either of worshiping what I do not want to or not worshiping what I wish. He talks about worship that is without devotion of faith is useless to God. Um, he talks about it is a matter that must be managed with words rather than by blows so that it may be voluntary. If you wish indeed to defend religion by blood, if by torments, if by evil, then it will not be defended, but it will be polluted and violated. There is nothing so voluntary as religion. So you notice why I've been stressing here, the early church fathers stressed the nature of belief, the nature of worship, the nature of the human being as a personal agent, and the nature of God himself uh, requiring worship and to see that done voluntarily by the human. So the next page, continuing with Lactantius, some interesting quotes there. Um, he talks about religion ought to be defended not by killing but by dying, not by fury but by patience, not by crime but by faith. That's an interesting quote. He thinks it's far better for Christians to be willing to suffer and to be a testimony for the faith so that they are the ones who suffer, or as he says here, to defend the faith not by killing but by dying. I would encourage you on your own sometime uh, to look at the context of 1 Peter 3.15. It's the most famous apologetics a verse in scripture, right? So that you ought to be ready to give a response or a reason or an apologia to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you, right? And so we often kind of build upon that an entire structure of apologetics in a very modern sense. But if you look at the context before and after, all the verses are about suffering actually in 1 Peter 3. So the Christian is willing to suffer and so therefore they are asked questions and then they have a platform upon which they can give a reason for the hope that is in them. I mean, that, that kind of apologetics isn't very keen, perhaps, to a modern 21st century American who wants all the answers to be simply about logic, for example. I'm not at all downplaying logic. I'm not saying we should be illogical and irrational, etc. But I would encourage you to look at this verse inside his context of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Lactantius, in the next paragraph, 
contrasts to worship that entail the entire soul with a ritualistic act which pertains only to the fingers. So that you can make people's bodies move. You can make them fall down in supposed worship. You can make their fingers and their hands offer sacrifices. But you can't, through the sword, change the heart is what he's getting at. So that leads to nothing intimate, nothing of reverence, he goes on to say. Sacrifice, which is wrested from one against his will, is meaningless. It's not spontaneous from the heart. He even calls it an execration there at the end. The last paragraph there under Lactantius goes on to say, dropping down a line, these are truly deserving of the detestation of men to whom libation is offered with tears, with groans, with blood pouring forth from all their members. Well, I don't have it on the whiteboard chart, but that does bring us to the Edict of Milan. I don't have it on the whiteboard because actually it's during Lactantius's lifetime. So Lactantius dies in 325. He has gone through the great persecution of 303. Now he's going through the Constantinian turn, which you have this amazing turn in which um, the emperor claims to have been Christianized. And I realize there's a strong and very understandable <laughs> debate about the uh, the depth and even reality of Constantine's conversion. But what he does do on a political level is he does uh, make it far more open to Christianity on a social political level. And the key example is the Edict of Milan. What may surprise you um, is that, strictly speaking, the Edict of Milan simply leveled the playing field. I think a lot of Christians believe the Edict of Milan like elevated Christianity and made it the state-supported religion, but actually it did not. It actually directly said in the edict that everyone of all religions had freedom to worship. So the pendulum's swinging, and for a brief period of time, it's going to hover in balance. And then it's going to go the other way, so that by the time you get to the late 300s, Christians are now persecuting other people. And it's a reminder that religious liberty is the cry of the underdog. Um, you know, how, how often were we talking about religious liberty for other minority religious groups in the United States 50 years ago as Christians, for example. Now suddenly we have this intent to have a principled view of religious liberty, but primarily because we feel that we are being, uh, quote, persecuted. I would, I would personally say we should probably look more careful in our words, uh, ostracized, socially marginalized at this point. I would personally be hesitant to call it persecution in comparison to what other people are suffering around the world and throughout church history. Uh, but not to inflate the rhetoric at that point. But definitely, in a post-Christianizing culture, things are swinging, right? The pendulum is changing at that point. So uh, to quote there, the Edict of Milan, it promoted Christians free and unrestricted opportunity to practice their religion. It also guaranteed all residents the freedom of worship in accordance with sound and upright reason. To others as well, it said, the freedom and full liberty has been granted in accordance with the peace of our times to exercise free choice in worshiping as each one has seen fit. Now, that's the beginning of the Constantinian turn. And early on, he can do some things that, in his mind, are just like returning it back to what it was. So we burn down some Christian churches. Let's rebuild them. We burn Christian scriptures. Let's pay for them with imperial money. Uh, he's not yet trying to insist upon it being the state religion, though. That will happen in the decades and uh, centuries and a half that follows. They'll start like closing down the pagan schools, uh, Plato's Academy, um, suppressing Jews, for example, in the post-Constantinian Roman Empire. That's why the next paragraph says, unfortunately, after unfolding the so-called Constantinian turn, the persecuted became the persecutors. As a reminder, religious liberty is the cry of the underdog. Religious groups that feel oppressed call for religious liberty. The same groups tend to forget its importance when they wield socio-cultural political power. Uh, so that brings us to Jefferson. 
and the American founding fathers. We're going to leap all the way from Lactantius all the way at the end of the whiteboard up there to Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers. And why is that? That is because way back in 2006, in reading through uh, the early church fathers and also doing some work and teaching some U.S. history, I just noticed some seeming tenor of commonality. And in a conference, I hypothesized that the patristic concept of religious liberty as found in Tertullian and Lactantius may have influenced the American founding fathers, including James Madison and Thomas Jefferson in particular. As my only evidence at the time, I summoned the fascinating evidence of the catalog of Thomas Jefferson's personal library. So he has a personal library, and under the subject of the title of religion, in his catalog, he has Tertullianus, obviously Tertullian, Lactantius, Lactantius, Lactantius on the death of persecutors, a very specific work, Justin Martyr, works, opera. Nevertheless, I commented, of course, we cannot know for sure if the erudite Jefferson, no adherent of Orthodox Christianity himself, ever read these specific books in his library, much less if they directly impacted his views on religious liberty. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, until another academic conference about a decade later, uh, at which Robert Louis Wilkin was talking, he's the Keenan Professor of History of Christianity at the University of Virginia, he had been investigating some of these very same things. Um, in the end, if you're interested, his work came out in a book that's called Liberty and the Things of God. Yeah, I can pass it around as long as I get that back. It's a Yale University Press. So it's a much fuller account of some of these stories. And he's, he's trying to stress what we're doing here about the Christian stream of talk about religious liberty. And he, of course, worked at the University of Virginia. So he had access to some Thomas Jefferson documents. And he found the Latin of Tertullian's Ad Scapulum II, which was the paragraph someone read for us earlier, written out in Thomas Jefferson's own copy of Notes on the State of Virginia in the University of Virginia's Special Collection Library. So this led him to request access to Jefferson's personal copy of Tertullian's works at the Library of Congress. And to kind of summarize that next paragraph, the beginning of it, if you can imagine holding this 1700s book from Thomas Jefferson's library, opening up Tertullian in Latin, turning it, looking to ad scapulum paragraph two, and there in Jefferson's hand was an X, like literally X marked the spot. Like he, he found exactly the paragraph he was looking for. So if you ever have a chance, it's still actually up um, the picture of Jefferson's library. This is at the Library of Congress. My family had a chance to be there two summers ago. So this is the entryway to the glass uh, well-preserved area where it's currently being housed. You can see the spiral on the right. You walk in and uh, you can kind of see his collection laid out in bookshelf form as it would have been. And then someone simply standing there in front of all that. So um, what, what happens then is that um, it's discovered both in his own copy of Ad Scapulum and in his own published work on the notes of the state of Virginia, which he had by hand copied out at scapulum. So you have a twofold proof, as it were. So the Latin in his own English book, and then the X in his Latin copy of Tertullian. And according to the Library of Congress, he purchased that copy in 1814. Furthermore, correspondence, and now we're on page three at the top, between Jefferson and Adams reflects knowledge of other materials in both Tertullian and Lactantius. So this discovery corroborated the hypothesis that the American founding fathers did know material from the early church concerning the matter of freedom of religion. But it brought up another puzzle, though. Like, how do you get then from Lactantius and Tertullian over to Jefferson? Like, how does it travel that way? Um, and how do they know that they want to look in ad scapulum to get there? Which brings us going backwards now. So first of all, Roger Williams and William Penn. 
So in the case of Roger Williams and William Penn, they both had already quoted Tertullian. We're backing up now to the 1600s. And William Penn quoted Lactantius in support of his espousal of religious liberty. He said, if you will with blood, with evil, and with torments defend your worship, it shall not thereby be defended, but be polluted. Of course, uh, William Penn, what was he denominationally? He's Quaker, so Society of Friends, and of course, what's, what colony or what state does he begin? Pennsylvania, Penn's Woods. Um, and Pennsylvania allowed freedom uh, for all Trinitarian believers. So he was, because Quakers were persecuted in England, he was trying to have a place where Quakers and then Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians and others could freely worship inside Pennsylvania. You also get, of course, um, German Anabaptists who come. And so um, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch are not like Hollander Dutch, they're Deutsche, they're Germans. Uh, but like uh, the Quakers, they're a pacifist denomination. The Moravians came. They're all settling in, um, in Pennsylvania. So he borrowed also from Tertullian. So the quote there at the end of that paragraph, that tis not the property of religion to compel or persecute for religion. She should be accepted for herself, not by force. That comes from Tertullian. If you look at the wider context of that quote, um, within that same passage, there is a sentence that's quoted three times by Roger Williams including the bloody tenet of persecution, 1644. Another man's religion neither hurteth nor profiteth any. Jefferson's paraphrastic rendition was much more memorable, but it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. So it's, it's a very memorable way of saying my neighbor's faith doesn't hurt me um, if they're obeying, you know, like civil law type issues, right? So if they're not uh, causing you know, violence, et cetera, on a civil level, their, their religious belief doesn't hurt me is what um, he was getting at at that point. All right, so that's Roger Williams and William Penn. A little bit side note, I mentioned Pennsylvania. What colony does Williams help start? The original 13 colonies. Rhode Island, so he because he's fleeing persecution in Massachusetts. For a while, he's he hovers around with the Baptists. He helps to start the first Baptist church in America in Rhode Island. Although in the end, he leaves all organized religion, and he becomes quote what he says is a seeker. After that, of course, Baptists are still uh, persecuted in various ways up in Mass Puritan Massachusetts. So it's it's an interesting what what needs to happen with Christian historians is they need to be honest with what happens in the past and not use it for political ploys alone. So we talk about Christianity, you know, the founding of America, we point to Massachusetts. You also have to acknowledge, for example, I imagine that there would be some in the room that might perhaps consider yourselves to be Baptists. And to be honest, if you were put in a time machine to Puritan Massachusetts, you'd be subject to beating, for example, to be flogged um, in Puritan Massachusetts. Um, and there's all kinds of things like that. I mean, the Puritans were against Christmas. So we talk about keep Christ in Christmas. But they're like, keep the mass out of Christmas. It's too Catholic for them. And so they would have laws that would be opposed to the celebration of Christmas. And we probably need evangelicals in the 21st century who are well-versed in history not to have simple Twitter warfare about really easy things about claiming about the past and fighting people on a very simplistic level with the use of history. So let's go backward from Wadra Williams. For a while, he was affiliated with the Baptists. We can go backward from there, the early English Baptists. So we're going to jump the pond, as it were, go over to Great Britain. As already noted by Wilkin, the English Baptist author John Merton penned a most humble sacrifice 
a supplication rather, of many of the king's majesty's loyal subjects. It should be loyal subjects. There should be an S there. In that work, he argued that persecution for cause of conscience is condemned by the ancient and later writers. Um, as proof, he quoted a lengthy passage, once again, Tertullian ad scapulum two, without giving it the name per se, um, beyond what Wilkin has said, so we can add more to Wilkin, uh, he added that John Sturgeon's a plea for toleration of opinions and persuasions in matters of religion borrowed from the work of Jeremy Taylor by citing a list of patristic proponents of religious toleration, including both Tertullian and Lactantius. Um, the necessity of toleration in matters of religion, penned by the English Baptist author Samuel Richardson, seemingly reflects a paraphrase of Tertullian again, ad scapulum two. And Richardson's work also cited the Edict of Milan, which was probably influenced by Lactantius. We've talked about that. Hercules Collins, dies in 1702, referenced Hillary's against Accentius and quoted a lengthy passage from Tertullian's Ad Scapulum II once again, although he simply says, it's one of the ancients. Which brings us to the next paragraph, John Robinson. You may have heard his name before, tied to the pilgrims. He's the English separatist who organized the Mayflower voyage of the pilgrims and declared the ancient father, so he doesn't use the word Tertullian, but that's who he's talking about clearly because he says the ancient father desired scapula, of course, this is the letter of Scapula, that he would pity himself if he would not pity the Christians whom he cruelly persecuted. In fuller manner, Robinson affirmed the following. Could I have another volunteer be willing to read from the very same to be observed all the way to the end of that paragraph? And read it loud in case you can pick it up a little bit on the mic. Any volunteer? Thank you. Robinson affirmed the very same is to be observed in the ancient fathers in their times, of whom such as lived in the first 300 years after Christ and suffered within, with the churches under heathen persecutors, pleaded against all violence for religion, true or false, affirming that it is of human right and natural liberty for every man to worship what he thinks God, and that it is no property of religion which ought to be taken up freely, that no man is forced by the Christians against his will, seeing that he wants faith and devotion is unserviceable to God, and that God, not being contentious, would not be worshipped of the unwilling. So you notice some of those continuing themes, right? The language of natural rights is fascinating because this is a very Christian theological text. It's not an Enlightenment text. Uh, based you know, purely on uh, philosophical reasoning alone. You have human right, natural liberty. You have that last sentence about the nature of God who would not want to be worshipped by the unwilling. So that's Robinson um, and the one who's affiliated with the uh, Mayflower Pilgrims. So that book that's going around, it does not have some of these early English Baptists and their compatriots in that edition of the book. Um, I have talked to Wilkin. Um, in fact, he, he credits me a little bit in the opening of that book, in the opening kind of introduction about there about some input that we had, a little bit I had. He's by far more the one doing most of the research um, in these fields. But the next one, moving uh, backward, we would come to Sebastian Castellio and Continental Authors. The picture there in the PowerPoint is actually a monument um, in his city in Switzerland. And it was really small print. You probably can't read it. But in the bottom, in English, actually in four different languages, actually. So you have in German, in French, in Italian, and in English, the quote, uh, and Latin up above, to kill a man is not to protect a doctrine, but it is to kill a man. 
So his view is you can kill people for the sake of trying to make them believe what you want them to believe, but you're really not protecting your doctrine. Because once again, it gets back to the issue of is it real belief if it's coerced um, and the nature of humans and the nature of God himself. So in turn, it seems that the English Baptist view of religious liberty had been influenced by Anabaptists. So the, the connecting point would be the Netherlands. So remember, English Baptists and other separatists had gone down to the Netherlands and interacted with continental Anabaptists. Using a pen name, Sebastian Castelio published Should Heretics Be Persecuted in 1554 as a defense of religious toleration against religious intolerance in Calvin's Geneva. This is when the whole um, issue of the Spanish uh, Unitarian who had fled Spain, gone to Geneva, and then um, was ended up being burned at the stake. And so in Calvin's mind, it's like, um, you know, it's better off than more, you know, violent ways that we could have killed him. Um, and he would say that it was the church, I'm sorry, the city council ultimately that had the power, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I say all that because there's all kinds of debates about the role of Calvin because the name Calvin is such, um, you know, a, a, a flashpoint among various systems today. The point isn't to get into those types of debates uh, for the purpose of this session here. The, the purpose is to talk about someone who was opposed in general to the lack of religious liberty in Geneva at the time. His name was Sebastian Castelio. He was a Greek professor. He was a linguist. And he actually writes a book in response to all that, Should Heretics Be Persecuted? And it talks about luminaries, including lengthy passages from Lactantius. And he argued, including the last phrase of that paragraph on page four, that you were doing to others what you would not have done unto you, which is actually, what would we call that in biblical ethics? What's that phrase? Golden the golden rule, right? So it's basically the concept of the golden rule, doing others as you would have them doing to do, do unto you. It's actually being used then for religious liberty. And so to think your way through that, um, you probably are more prone to make that call if you are the religious minority in a social, social cultural context, because you don't have the power and you want people to treat you uh, with liberty and freedom. And once again, often what happens when that same group gets the power, they tend to forget about the golden rule and they treat other people and suppress them in ways they would not have wanted to be treated. The next paragraph talks about some other uh, minor thinkers in this whole role a French philosopher and a German reformed political philosopher who also quoted Lactantius. No one could be found to believe against his will. And John Robinson himself acknowledged he was influenced by Peter. I misspelled Peter there instead of Piter, it should be P-I-E. There's a I-E there, Peter Jans Twisk. He was a Dutch Anabaptist author. Twisk had followed Castelio's lead by publishing a compilation of over 1,000 historical sources supporting religious toleration, including patristic materials. All right, so uh, before we get to the conclusion here, I kind of hope that this kind of journey made sense, even though we went through the early church fathers, jumped to Thomas Jefferson, the American founding fathers, and then worked our way backwards. And it's fascinating, what I'm, I'm stressing here is that this is a Christian stream of influence. Let me try this a different way. Uh, both strong secularists and Christian theologians can talk about religious liberty, but often in the case of secularists, the reason is because to them, uh, religion is so problematic that religion leads to violence, especially in their view, the monotheistic religions in particular, because they believe in the oneness and therefore exclusivity of their beliefs. And so by very nature, in their view, um, they are more prone to suppression of other people. And so because religion is so problematic, it's to be tolerated, like kind of like high gas prices or something like you tolerate it, but you don't want it. 
Well, in the Christian perspective, religious liberty, first of all, uh, some purists would say it's a different phrase than religious toleration. You can even kind of notice the connotation. You're not just tolerating religion. Like, ah, I hate it, but we'll tolerate it. It's like you want it to have liberty, have freedom. Why? Not because religion is so unimportant, but the opposite, because religion is so important that you want people to freely choose religion. And so the early English Baptists would say, if you don't, like if you nowadays you put a gun to the head, you know, back then you put a sword to the throat, and you're like, believe or else, you know, what will the mass of people do? Sure, sure, I believe, I believe. And the Baptists would call that dissimulation. So a word we would use today is hypocrisy. They would say that religious persecution leads to hypocrisy. It leads to people saying things they don't really believe. And we don't want that because religion is so important. So that's kind of a, a contrast I think that's important to think through um, our discussions and the tenor and connotations of it. We may be using similar language as secularists, but ultimately in the 1600s Christian theological view, it was because Jesus Christ himself is the only Lord of the conscience. So no human can bind someone's conscience. Um, only, um, only Jesus can do that. And so this, this is kind of like the spider webbing as we're thinking about this. And by the way, this, this does spider web with other beliefs. But it's, for example, early English Baptists are developing or returning to at the time, a key one here being infant baptism. So although we think of infant baptism being opposed and therefore believer baptism by immersion, which appears by 1640s, as like the reason the Baptists get their name, really the underlying uh, continuous factor that draws it all together is actually religious liberty, actually. That's why they believe in separation of church and state, and that's also why they oppose infant baptism. It's because it's not free. It's not voluntarily done. And so that's, that was we, what that kind of ties all that together. And so, by the way, as another example, we need people thinking critically and thinking consistently. I don't know about in your lifetime, but perhaps in your lifetime, in some of your churches, you have heard about, um, so uh, for, say, pretty much from all, most of my life, attending Baptist churches, and you have people talk about a Baptist acronym, for example, and the S is separation of church and state. It's a good thing. And then you come back the next quarter and Sunday school, and it's like, separation of church and state, that phrase has never found the Constitution. It's a bad thing. And people just kind of nod their heads and go along with that. But they don't, they don't realize they're thinking in contradictory manners. And somehow this all has to fit together. And so you, you have to be able to uh, rationally put it together. So conclusion. If I were to venture another conjecture, it would be that the gap between Roger Williams and, not Thomas, but Thomas <laughs> Jefferson, had been, at least in part, bridged by Jefferson's personal interaction with John Leland, an early American Baptist leader. Leland had publicly supported Jefferson's bid to ensure religious liberty in Virginia, and he had advocated for protection of religious liberty within the Constitution. <laughs> in response, Jefferson had personally invited Leland to visit the White House and to speak at a special guest, as a special guest before Congress on January 3, 1802. In a show of gratitude, Leland transported a mammoth cheese, a big cheese wheel, made by the ladies of his Baptist congregation in Cheshire, Massachusetts. The enormous cheese wheel weighed 1,230 pounds. He actually gets it all the way down the Hudson River, all the way. In fact, a couple years ago, Cheshire, Massachusetts actually did a, a special monument dedicated to this mammoth cheese, 1,235 pounds, and they have a little historical reenactment about this being wheeled and transported all the way down to Washington, D.C. This, of course, all happened in 1802. 
And what, what I find interesting is that 1802 lands in between the notes on Virginia, 1784, and um, 1812 when, he when Jefferson purchased the Tertullian book. It lands in there. And whatever the influence must have been has to land in that time period. And acknowledgedly, um, that is a pretty big time period. And we we're talking a couple decades, right? But this is an important event that happened within there. So in my view currently, I think that might be where we want to look next, is to see if we can find direct influence from Leland um, onto Jefferson. In any case, our journey through history has provided important insights. Contemporary thinkers, both religious and non-religious, can learn from the early Christian plea for religious freedom. The patristic defense of religious liberty was founded upon universal principles concerning the proper nature of belief, worship, and persuasion. The argument should be attractive to all, not just persecuted early Christians. The early Christians argued that religious freedom was founded upon universal tenets concerning the nature of humans and religion, the nature of the conscience and truth, and the nature of persuasion and apologetics, and ultimately upon the very nature of God himself, and once again, the stress that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. In an introduction composed by Leonard Busher's Religious Peace or a Plea for Liberty and Conscience, Henry Burton acknowledged the long pedigree of religious liberty. He properly declared, the plea for liberty of conscience is no new doctrine. Contemporary tensions may cause a discussion to branch in new directions, but the roots of religious freedom lie deep in patristic soil. Questions or comments or anything that may be of interest? Yes, sir. Did you ever hear what the inscription was that was written on the original cheese? No, I have not traced that. What was it? Do you know what it was? I do. Um, and I'm not trying to be controversial, but this is the inscription. <laughs> Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Actually, I, I didn't realize that was on the cheese. I came across that uh, when I was looking at some research. I didn't realize that was actually literally on the cheese. That was on the cheese, yeah. I mean, uh, Jefferson has some, apart from Leland, he has interaction with Baptists elsewhere. I mean, for example, he is interacting with the Danbury Baptist of Connecticut, famously in which they're like, oh, we don't think that's a great idea with the Bill of Rights, because if you say the government grants religious freedom, then it's a human-given right, and the government can take it back, and we think it's a divine right. God himself gives the freedom to the conscience. So then Jefferson writes back to the Danbury Baptist, I believe this is 1804, like the next year after the, the Mammoth Cheese, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, I agree with you. Um, we're just trying to, like, frame it, preserve it. We're not saying the government gives it to the people. We're just trying to preserve what God or what the supreme being, being the deity himself has given to people. So, and that's, by the way, the first time the phrase separation of church and state appears in an early American founding document. Yeah. Could you just uh, refresh, I know you already talked about this, but uh, I missed part of it, the Christian view versus the secular view of religious So this is my take. It's really simplistic. So like all broad brushstrokes, it seems to me that a strong secularist view of talking about religious toleration is basically going to say because um, religion is really problematic and it leads to tension and fighting and so let's just tolerate it. Uh, while um, the, the 1600s view among these uh, Christian theologians, um, especially these are primarily dissenters, right? Uh, they would say it's because religion is so important that we want it to be free. And the word they would use is we don't want it to be dissimulation. What that word is hypocrisy. We want it to be real, to be true, um, and it's because God is working in the heart, not because the state authority is putting a sword to the throat. Does that make sense? That's a basic. That's my interpretation of the basic difference. 
Yeah. And for much of it, I mean, Tertullian, Cyprian, Lactantius, it's a time of imperial cults and Roman deities yeah. and things like that. But as you get to the English Baptists, it seems like their religious liberty is more about tolerating different sects of Christianity, mm -hmm. not, or no religion, but not necessarily other deities. Most of the... Sure. Yeah, so let me, I'll begin with the Roman side and then go to the Sixth <laughs> side. Uh, the Roman side, besides Christianity, at times the Romans had suppressed the Druid religion, so like the Teutonic German tribal religion. They'd suppressed the Bacchanalia, which is kind of like this, I don't know what call it, this, this kind of small cult-like thing growing in Rome itself. Uh, we get the 1600s. I mentioned in passing how Penn, like all Trinitarians, <laughs> have freedom of worship. Williams in Rhode Island was different. So, of course, the very first Jewish synagogue in American soil is in Rhode Island. And he directly talked about giving <laughs> Jews freedom. But he also talked about infidels. In his view, the colony of Rhode Island Providence should give freedom to infidels. That would be his word. And he also said Turks and Mohammedans. And so this is where you, know, you get into debates today about these various things. But if you're going by the book of what he said, uh, he was directly mentioning Turks and Mohammedans having freedom of religion inside Rhode Island. Some have replied, well, that's just abstract. How common really is it to get that? Um, I'm kind of off the shelf because I'm working on more patristic stuff. That early modern stuff is not my forte, as it were, research-wise. But there is some evidence of concrete examples of uh, Muslim interaction with uh, the West on these issues of religious liberty in the 1600s. You also, interestingly enough, you have a large amount of African slaves being imported into the New World with Muslim background. And so then you have the question of, um, is it really going to be principled universal freedom and uh, religious liberty? Um, still framed, of course, by civil issues. So, for example, Williams himself will talk about the Ten Commandments and the two tablets, and the government has no power whatsoever in his mind to enforce the first tablet. So that would be worshiping God, having no other gods, not taking God's name in vain, uh, Sabbatarian worship. So the, the government cannot enforce that at all. He, it's not saying, though, the government has no right to enforce morality, like you can't enforce, because he would say the government should enforce no murder um, and no um, lying under oath, et cetera. Um, he's even willing to say no adultery, so getting involved in sexual issues from the second tablet. So that'd be his framework at the time, because he sees these as for the sake of the civil upkeep of, of the time period. So that's another example of the complexities of you know putting yourself in a time machine, going back to the 1600s, 1700s. You know, none of them had a sense of large, massive Muslim immigration, for example. And when we're talking about that, they're just thinking, I, I would say rather abstractly. I, I think it is principle in their view, but you know, I don't think they would be thinking of uh, large amounts of immigration at that period in time on just kind of a realistic level of what's happening at the moment. Great question. Yeah. You mentioned be careful when uh, you're the one that's holding the religious uh -huh. uh, liberty not to overpower those below you. Could you give any examples in today's American Christianity in which uh, freedoms we do have to, let's say, here's some examples where someone um, misused that freedom? Yeah. So let's say Jehovah's Witnesses and pledging allegiance to the flag, let's say. Um, it is kind of fascinating that if you look at the flag, like the flag flying on my campus, the American flag is flying above the Christian flag. And that's meant to say something in the ordering by legal jurisdiction, as it were. It's more like um, tradition, I guess you might say, as well as legal. 
Does um, the American flag have to stand higher? It does. And so then you think of the symbol. I mean, there's all kinds of ironies in all of this. I mean, the, the Christian flag as we fly today is primarily flown by conservatives today. It was actually formed by a National Council of Christian Churches person, of a mainline liberal of the early 1900s. They kind of dropped the symbolism, and then conservatives kind of keep it going forward. Um, and so we would be like, I can't believe that they don't want to pledge allegiance to the flag. Obviously, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. By patristic standards, they're Arians who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. But you get into interesting debates now about the Pledge of Allegiance and all that. But if you were living in 1930s in Germany and you were asked to pledge allegiance in a patriotic way to your country, would you see it differently? And so where do we go in a post-Christian culture? Um, and where could it go? And this is, again, the idea of thinking in a principled manner. Um, so I'll give you another example. Somebody, that I was familiar with, he was kind of upset because one of his workers um, wanted Saturdays off because he'd become like a Saturday Sabbatarian, um, kind of like a Seventh-day Adventist, but a, a side group type of scenario. He was rather upset about that. But he himself would want to have Sundays off. And although we often critique uh, Constantine because of the Constantinian turn, and we're like, you know, he enforces Christianity. I mean, historically, you would say if, if you enjoy Sundays off, that you would have to credit Constantine for that politically. But he's the one who in the, in, in the end really begins to give us Sundays off. So history is complex. There's parts about Constantine we may like and enjoy and appreciate and parts we don't like. But if there's someone who like is abiding by Westminster canons that directly says you cannot do any work on Sunday, which I would encourage you if you compare the SBC statements from uh, 1925 to 1963 to 2000 and compare the Baptist faith and message, 2000 greatly changes the Lord's Day paragraph. It used to say it can only be used for rest and worship, uh, needs of necessity alone accepted. Now it says, under uh, the Lord as your conscience, do as you see fit on Sunday. It's I mean, the way I would say is the NFL won out over Westminster canons. I am not personally a Sunday Sabbatarian. I just find it fascinating that that's what happened, though. Uh, that sports, I think, is what happened in American culture uh, to win out over what's happening on Sundays. So we find it hard to give someone else a day off of rest, but we would want our own day off of rest. There'll be another example of thinking one's way through that. Is that kind of helpful in some examples? Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, you may definitely get it. All right, well, thanks everyone for coming. It is time, so I think we gotta get going. So thank you for coming. I'm presenting this one again tomorrow. I forget what time slot, but if you thought it was worth coming to for a friend, send them our way tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks for remembering that. I forgot. Thank Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.